Good morning. It's uh, great to be here today with you all to worship our God together. I want to start just with one announcement before we jump in this morning, and that is on September the 10th, Saturday, we will have a, our next membership class. What we decided to do this time around, we're kind of trying some different, different ways of doing it, but what we decided to do this time is to, uh, to have it all in one day, and so it will be 8.30 to 12.30 on Saturday, September the 10th. So instead of coming for uh, four different sessions on four different days, we're going to try to just do it all four one-hour sessions. We'll have a break at the end of each session and just kind of go in. Well, that'll be entirely done by 12.30. So if you're interested in becoming a member of Four Corners, I would just invite you to please come along to these. We've already had one class or one set of four sessions And uh, this will be our second, so just invite those of you who are able to make it to go ahead and put that on your calendars. So what is this that you have up in front of you on the slide? In 1 BC, there was a letter written from a man named Hilarion from the city of Alexandria, and he wrote it to his wife in uh, the interior of Egypt. Her name was Alice, not Alice, but Alice. He wrote this letter to her, and this is what it says, at least in part. I beg and entreat you, take care of the little one, and as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it up to you. If by chance you bear a child, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, expose it. So the question there is, what what does he mean by expose your child, expose our daughter if it is a girl? Well, basically it means this, that after the little girl was born, she was placed either on a trash heap or in the middle of nowhere, in the field, on a mountainside, just wherever to die. That was widely practiced in the ancient world. It was something... That would have existed at the time that Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians. And it was a way in which the people in that society thought about children, particularly daughters. The child would either die or be taken as a slave or become a prostitute. And also boys were exposed. I mean, it wasn't just daughters. It was children that were just unwanted. And typically having daughters after the first was seen as something unwanted because they could not carry on the name. They did not sort of work and employ themselves. Plus there was a dowry needed for, for a daughter. And so they were just exposed. This was typical practice. And it was the case that as a child was born, they were not considered sort of alive or considered uh, valuable or part of the family until the father officially acknowledged the child. And at the point that the father officially acknowledged the child, then they are sort of introduced into the family and therefore by extension into the society as a whole. And also, as children grew up, they were killed at will. Wives, as well as children, were just treated as property in many ways, in many many households. And so husbands could beat their children to death or could kill their children for whatever reason. They They did not have to come up with excuse or a reason before a court for why they did what they did. They could do it simply because they wanted to. And I think this illustrates part of the attitude towards children that we had then, but also that we even see 
today. We see this attitude towards children in the widespread abortion that we see all around us. This is the same kind of evil that existed at that time in Paul's society, exists very much in our society. It's just a little bit more clinical. It's a little more sterile. It's a little bit more cloaked in dignity. Uh, and I put that word in quotation marks. But it is, it is something that is very much still a part of our world today. A false view, a sinful view, an ungodly view, an unnatural view of these ones called children. So the series that we are in at the moment is My Family for His Glory. It's based on Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 4. And so far, we've had eight sermons in this series that have taken us basically up through the end of chapter 5. And so we finished chapter 5 last week. We've had two sermons on foundations where we've just looked at the context of our, context of our passage as we come to Ephesians 5.22. What is the sort of lead up to that as we are introduced to that passage throughout the first four and then into the fifth chapter of Ephesians? So we had two chapters on foundations. I mean, two sermons on foundations. Then we had two sermons on wives, looking at verses 22 to 24 in chapter 5. And then we had three sermons. We had to add an extra one there for husbands. And that was on verses 25 to 33. Last week, what we did was we looked back over the passage on marriage, over the passage on husbands and wives, and we reflected on the implications of that text for single people people in our church who are unmarried. And we looked at different kinds of singles, different groups of singles that are perhaps represented by people here at our church or that may be in your family or beyond, people that you know. And so that's, kind of, that's what we've done so far up to this point. Today we come to a new group of people addressed by our passage. And this group is introduced by the opening word of chapter 6. You see that there, children. So go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6, if you will. Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 3. Today will be the first sermon on children. It's entitled, A Child's Obedience. And we're, we're working with a new mic today, so I've heard that uh, I have to take it easy on certain letters. Uh, that may or may not work out, but I will, I will do my best here. So, A Child's Obedience. Today is just the first sermon. I almost said they're the first of two, but I don't really know. So I'm just going to say the first, and we'll see. The intention, of course, is that next week we will finish children and move on to parents. Although these two ideas, you can't treat children without explicitly thinking about parents and, and vice versa. So these two, uh, these two groups, children and then fathers, and by extension parents, will be kind of blended together really for the remainder, remainder of this series. So let's look. Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And I'll just stop there for today. So what are we going to try to accomplish today? Basically, I just want to set up our discussion on this group of people. I want to set up our discussion on children by focusing on the opening words of verse 1. Just these words. Children, obey your parents. I just want to kind of camp out there for a moment. 
And when we look at these words in their context, so we go back and we, we take these words, children, obey your parents, and we go back into all of Scripture, and then we go back into the book of Ephesians, we go back to the section that precedes our passage, and then we look in our passage itself, so as we're kind of working out from the context, I think we can make four basic observations before getting into the details of this passage. So before we even get into what is, is said in verses 2 and 3 and even at the end of verse 1, what I want to do is just make four basic observations about children that we get from the Bible as a whole and then leading into this passage. So if you'll go ahead and put that. Thank you, Thomas. Four things here. Children are given as a blessing. Children serve as an illustration. Children derive from union. And children depend on our authority. These are four basic things that we have to get before we can move into the details, before we can really begin to understand what is going on with children and then what is going on with parents, fathers, as we'll see mentioned in verse 4. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time together today, and then we'll jump into children as a blessing. Our good Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you that you call us to belong to your son and that you give us a new heart by your spirit. And then you give us your word to guide us and to grow us in the Christian life. We thank you, Father, that we get your word throughout the week as we listen to it and read it. And think about it in gospel community groups and apply it to our lives. And, and as we come together corporately each week and hear from your word through preaching. God, we thank you for the ways that you have been faithful to us this past week. And we look forward to all the ways that you will demonstrate your loving kindness towards us in the week to come. We thank you, God, for the fellowship that we enjoy in this church, the brotherly love that we have. We thank you for our families. We thank you for the fact, God, that you have established families in this church who are doing the things that your word calls for, who are instructing their children and who are loving one another. Uh, Lord, we recognize we're imperfect. We recognize that we will never be perfect husbands, wives, children, and parents. But we thank you, God, for your grace, which makes us righteous in your sight and then which applies that righteousness to our, to our everyday lives makes us more and more into the image of Christ so that we grow in wisdom every day. And God, I pray that today as we go through this text, as we think about uh, the words of this sermon, Lord, that it will, it will be to that end, to the end that we grow in wisdom, that we grow in love, that we grow in godliness. Father, would you bless our church? We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the first thing to look at, this morning is that children are given as a blessing. Our passage starts with the word children. And we read this in Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5. Listen to these words. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. It's a very uh, evocative image of the warrior who has a quiver filled with arrows, and those arrows, each of those, is like a, a child that he sends out into the world. And so we get this specific language about a parent's appreciation and love 
for his and her child, a, a blessing from God, a gift from God, something that is, that is given by God and something that, that enriches, something that should be seen as a positive thing in one's life, a positive addition to one's life. And then we get a general impression of children and their value from the words of Jesus. In Mark 10, 16, Jesus says this, and what says this, he took them, these children, in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. It's interesting because the disciples were a lot like we are even in churches. Kids are running around acting crazy, doing all sorts of stuff that doesn't even make sense half the time. And the, the disciples are there around Jesus and they see a serious ordeal. This is a serious ordeal. This is the Son of God, Israel's Messiah, and these kids are running around. And even coming up to Jesus, getting in the way, standing in the way of this, this immensely significant moment of instruction of the Messiah. Get these kids out of here, basically, is the idea or is the, uh, the attitude of the disciples. And, of course, this is not the attitude of Jesus. He welcomes them. He says, don't forbid them to come to me. Come, come, come. He brings the children to himself, and he wraps his arms around them. He blesses them, and he lays his hands on them. That's Jesus' priority. Jesus prioritizes children. Jesus loves children. That's Jesus' attitude towards children, even in the midst of a serious moment where the kids are getting in the way. Or perhaps creating a distraction. Children are made in the image of God and exist from the moment of conception. And so we read in Psalm 139, 13 and following, For you formed my inward parts. And most of you have, have read this or seen it on a coffee cup or a t-shirt or something. You know, this is, this, is, this is a very commonly cited passage of scripture. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. You know, the images that I remember seeing uh, when I was in college, and I remember that there were these anti-abortion rallies, and there were sort of these pro-choice versus pro-life. Anytime there was a big vote or, or a, a, a time where there was a controversy on campus related to abortion, pro-life folks and pro-choice folks would be out doing their thing. And, and some of the signs that I would see from the pro-life protesters of these, these little tiny pieces of children, these little tiny hands that, that look like hands because they are hands. And these little toes and feet, these little pieces of bodies, human bodies, nearly formed, partially formed, substance, inward parts, formed, created by God. And the Lord told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So children in the womb matter to God, are known by God, their creator, and have, in every way, human dignity. So before we get into the details of this passage about children and parents, it must first be recognized that children ultimately belong to God, their creator. They have human dignity, and they are given to us as a blessing from 
God. So I think this rules out for us as we think about how we apply this truth, this theology about children that we get from the Bible. How do we apply this to our lives? And I think it rules out three behaviors towards children, three A's, three things that start with A, abortion, abandonment, and apathy. I've already mentioned abortion, but I want to say this about abortion. It's not just an affront to children. Abortion is not just something where individual children are murdered. This is something that's clear from what we've just looked at. The fact that, that God is the one who knew these individuals before he even made them. And that they exist in the womb. And that God is overseeing them even there in the womb. So it's clear that these are human beings planned and created by God. And that to kill them is murder. But I want you to see the more fundamentally wicked aspect of abortion, or you could say an abortion culture, and that is that it is an attempt at its heart to destroy the image of God. One of the things that we learn when we get to Genesis chapter 9, after Noah gets off the ark and God is speaking to him, God tells him that when a person is murdered, when, when a man spills another man's blood, his blood shall be required of him. Because man is made in God's image. To kill a human being is intrinsically evil for the fact that you're taking a life like your own. But it is even more fundamentally evil because in doing that, you are blaspheming and trampling upon the image of God in which they are made, in which they are created. And so an abortion culture... It's not just an, a culture of death. It's not just a culture of hatred of human life, hatred of children. It is a culture of hatred of God because it is an attempt in mass scale to wipe out, stamp out, and suppress the image of God in man. So this behavior towards children is ruled out just as we creep our way into verse 1, I think. Secondly, uh, another thing that's ruled out is abandonment. You know, this is not, and I want you to think in this way, this is not just sort of the image of a, a father who leaves his, his family. A, a dad who decides there's better, greener pastors on the other side, and so he decides he's not interested in being a husband and a father anymore. He's just going to sort of cash out, leave his family, and go on about his way. That's a clear, clear sign of abandonment. But I want you to see that a father who does not spend time with his children is in fact doing the very same thing, is failing to see that this child is a blessing from the Lord, a gift. Not something that just gets in the way. Not something that's just an inconvenience to what I want to do. But a precious individual, a human being, who is a gift, who is a blessing, and who is made in God's image. And finally, probably most of us in here would say, or some of us perhaps would say, you know, abortion, abandonment, okay, I've got that. But what, what about just apathy? Apathy towards children. Apathy is the kind of attitude that just sort of comes home from work or maybe during the day if you're a mom and you just kind of don't care. You're just not really interested in your kids. You're not interested in getting to know them. You're not interested in what they love and what they desire. You're not interested in their development. You're just kind of unplugged, disconnected, apathetic, indifferent to them, 
their desires, their needs, and their development. All of this fails to see what children are. Fundamentally, as a gift, something which God gives us to bless us, to enrich us, a treasure, a precious trust. And we'll talk more about trust and stewardship and all of that as we go along. But this is just the basic thing that I want you to see. Children are given as a blessing from the Lord. The second thing that we need to see before we go into the details of our passage is that children serve as an illustration. And I could put a, I should put an S on the end of that. Children serve as illustrations. Once again, I draw you back to that word at the beginning of chapter 6, children. This series of sermons that we're on is an intensive study of a passage that is situated in a particular letter written by the Apostle Paul, as we see, to the Ephesians. But it, as we looked at at the very beginning, it goes beyond that. This, this letter is not just written to the church at Ephesus, but it's written to Ephesus and the surrounding churches. So there's a, a number of, of things that we discussed in that first sermon where we talked about uh, that this is probably a letter that's, that's circulated among various churches. But the passage that we're looking at is situated in this letter. And in the opening words of this letter, we are confronted with one of the most precious truths in the Christian faith. Let me just say this. One of the things that we typically read the Bible that we skip over so quickly is the greeting. It's just like, okay, Paul, yeah, hi. You know, that's it. You just move on. And, and he gets into sort of the, the big stuff, the substantial stuff. What's amazing is that most of, the, most of the basic truths of Christianity for Paul are in the greeting. As he just sort of addresses the people to whom he's speaking. And you will see this, uh, I, this is probably a good time to mention, the next series that we're going to do, the next study that we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Titus. That's going to be the next thing. When we finish Ephesians 5 and 6, we're going to go and look at the book of Titus. And one of the things that you can go home and look at even this afternoon is the greeting in the book of Titus is probably the most substantial in the New Testament. I don't know that right off the top of my head, but it's probably the most substantial as far as I can think that I've seen. It's just so rich with theology. But even in this little sentence that we get at the beginning of Ephesians, we see this amazing Christian truth. And here's what it says. Chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace, already a lot there. But this is what I want you to see. From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we are children of a father. We are ourselves children. We are children of a heavenly father who through his own unique son has adopted us into his family forever. And so we do not belong to God as, as children in this unique way that Jesus does. Jesus is God's one and only son, his own unique son, with him forever, always with him. Before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit existing together in perfect harmony, community, and love. Jesus is the unique son of the Father. And we get that in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So how do we fit into Jesus' sonship under the Father? Well, we get that in 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And so we get this amazing imagery. We get it in Romans chapter 8 where the Father 
sends his son to pay the penalty for our sin. He's raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven. And the son pours out the Holy Spirit who is called the spirit of adoption. Because listen to this. The father gives the Messiah, the Christ, the spirit as as fulfillment of a promise. And it's the Christ, the Messiah, who pours out that spirit on those who will be adopted into God's family. And so one of the things that happens when you become a Christian is you get adopted by God the Father. So that when you pray, you look up to heaven and you say, Abba, just as Jesus did, and God never looks at you apart from Jesus. God has that same loving disposition that he has towards his own unique son. He has that towards you. It's an incredible truth of the Christian gospel. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes this possible. He's the one who seals this, but he's also the one that subjectively works in our experiences, in our, in, in our engagement with the Bible... To make this firm and clear and sure and certain in our hearts. And so the Holy Spirit is there to constantly remind us of this very wonderful truth. That we belong to God. That he's our father. That we're his children. That Jesus is our brother. And that in Jesus all the inheritance that God promised will be given to us. When we looked at marriage... We discovered that the relationship between Christ and his church is imaged in the relationship between a husband and his wife. So too, we see here that there is a spiritual image that is being imaged by the relationship particularly between a father and his son. Isn't that amazing? The family is filled with gospel imagery all over the place. In other words, as you wake up every morning, your alarm clock goes off and you go about it. You sort of interact with people in your family. You go about your day. You maybe text back and forth. You get home. You spend time together. You spend time together in the evenings, on the weekends. You go on vacation together. You spend time. You do life with your family. Every moment of that is a moment that is bathed in gospel truth. Because all of the interrelationships that exist in a family are meant to image something. The husband images Christ, and he loves his wife like Christ loves the church. The wife is the church. She images the church. She submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. The father in the household, he images our heavenly father. And the children image those who are God the Father's children. All of this gospel imagery... Everywhere around us, every single day. But this is, this is not the only illustration that we find of children. We know that children remind us of the relationship that we have with God the Father, that we too are children. Every time you look at a little kid, and in a little while they'll be running around here, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. And you see them, you should immediately think that is an image of what I am to the Father. That child is an illustration, an earthly illustration of my relationship to the Father as I am a child of the living God. But there's another way that children illustrate spiritual truth. Children are an illustration of the Christian disciple. Jesus says this in the Gospels, Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Which tells us this, every time we look at a little child, we should be reminded of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. 
the humility, the lowliness, the dependency, the trust, all of that that we see in children, especially the tiniest ones, all of that that we see in them should remind us of how we ought to be before God and what it is that we're trying to create when we go out. Not, not us create, but what it is we're trying to foster when we go out and we share our faith with people. We talk to people about Jesus. We are looking to people becoming like that little child. When we share our faith, when we talk to, talk to people about Jesus, we are hoping that people come to understand that they must enter the kingdom by way of humility and lowliness and dependency and trust. Every time we see a child, we are reminded of this discipleship truth. And yet, there is another way that children illustrate spiritual truth. And it has to do with Christian growth. Look back at Ephesians chapter 4. I want to show you this. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 13 to 14. So those who are given uh, certain gifts, as it's just been mentioned, or those who are gifted to the church are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then we get to verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to what? Mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, and listen to this, this is important, so that we may no longer be children. And then how does it describe what it is like to be children? It goes on to say, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So here's the point that I want you to see. Every time we look at a child, we should be reminded of what we are in the process of growing away from. The fickleness of children, the naivete, the fact that they're gullible, all of this that we see in children. We are growing away from that as we come to firmness and conviction and certainty and knowledge and love in the truth of the gospel. Firmly fixed, growing up into the head and becoming mature. So children are an illustration of what we don't want to be spiritually. An illustration of who we are before our Father in heaven. An illustration of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to enter into the kingdom of God. And an illustration of what we do not want to be in the Christian life. Let that be convicting to you. When you see a child just sort of fickle. You know, going wherever the wind may blow, no sense of direction on their own. Think about that. That is not the way we are meant to be as Christians. We are meant to be growing firm in the knowledge of the gospel. So, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, I think one thing that I want to say specifically to fathers as we kind of lean into verse 4 And that is that your relationship with your children will have a tremendous impact on how they understand God the Father. The way that you father your children will have a tremendous impact on how they see God the Heavenly Father. I mean, it's innumerable how many times you talk to people who say, I have trouble with God as Father because of the way 
that my father acted or the way that he spoke to me or the way he treated me. I don't have a good healthy view of fatherhood because that was the example modeled for me and how there's a process really oftentimes you know within the context of the church and it takes time and it's it's a healing redemptive process where that individual comes to discover who God is as father apart from that example that they should have had in the natural course of things that they should have had in their home from the time that they were tiny growing up. And that is someone who shows that love that the father has, that discipline that the father shows us. Not random outbursts of anger, but slow, firm, fair, consistent, steady discipline and love and gentleness. All of the ways... All of the ways that our Father relates to us that we know all too well about when we sin. All of the ways when we fall into sin that God, He gently and lovingly disciplines us, restores us, He teaches us, He guides us into the way of wisdom. Children need to see that, fathers. And I say that to myself. I say that to all of us here who are fathers. Children need to see the Heavenly Father in you. Also, family life has much to teach us about the gospel. Are we, are we looking? Are we observing? You know, one of the interesting things that you, you probably don't think of is when you go home and as you interact with your child and as you see the way that your child relates to you and as you feel that love towards your child, that natural kind of love that fathers have towards their children, that mothers have towards their children, as you see that parental love towards the child, that should remind you constantly, even as you analyze your own affections. Think about it. Even as you analyze your own affections, your own disposition towards that child, you are reminded of that's how God sees me. It's a gospel reminder. Every time we're at home, we're reminded of Christ and his church. And we're reminded of the fact that we have a heavenly father. So children serve as an illustration of spiritual truths and relationships. The third thing that I want you to see as we lean into this passage is that children derive from union. This one is super important. Children derive from union. Look at chapter 6, verse 1 again. We read there that children are to obey their parents, which pushes us back to the preceding verses on husbands and wives. Immediately, as we come to chapter 6, verse 1, and we see these, these folks addressed children, they come right on the heels of the verses that we've just read where wives and husbands are addressed. These are the ones who serve as parents. When we come to chapter 6, verse 1, these children belong to parents. Children, obey your parents. And I think this pushes us back ultimately to chapter 5, verse 31. And this is what we read there, chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother... And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's the main thing that I want you to see at this point in the sermon. Children are the product of this one flesh marital union. That's where they come from, in case you didn't know. That's where kids come from. They come from this one flesh marital union, this covenant relationship that expresses its 
expresses itself in sexual intercourse is the starting point for children. That's where you began. That's where I began. That's where our children began. And here's what I want you to see. This is so important. This is their beginning and their context for growth. This is everything. The marital one flesh union, that covenant union that exists, is their starting point and the context for all of their growth throughout their lives. We are reminded of this with the words of 6-1, parents. In every way, children come out of and derive from this union. One of the things that is very interesting to me is, and, and this, was, this has been happening for a long time, but I read, I read something, in a, it was a child psychology book at Barnes & Noble this past week, and it was just so funny to discover it actually in a book. But I've seen this over and over and over again with our three-year-old son. One of the things that he does is every time Jennifer and I hug, so in the kitchen, living room, wherever it is, we're, we're, Jake's running around, he's doing stuff, he's playing, and Jennifer and I stand and we hug each other. He does the same thing every single time. He runs up, there's probably about this much space or however much space there is, and sometimes there's not, not any space. And he comes in and he wiggles his way in between us right there and he just sits there. And he kind of holds his mommy's legs, holds his daddy's legs. He sits there right in between me and Jennifer. This is built into his heart. And it is a vivid illustration of the fact that the context for a child's development is in this union that exists between a husband and a wife. Kids need this union. They need their mother. They need their father. And they need to feel the love that exists between their mother and their father. So what does this tell us? We must see healthy parenting as an outworking of healthy marriage. One of the things that you may be tempted to think, and I speak to wives and husbands here, one of the things that you may be tempted to think is, I'm a good dad, but not really a great husband. I'm a good dad, but I'm not a good husband. Or you may be saying, you know, I'm a good mom, but I'm not a good wife. Here's what you need to see. That is an error. That is entirely flawed. That is entirely twisted and perverted. And it's a deception because you cannot be truly a good father unless you are a good husband. And you cannot truly be a good mother unless you are a good wife. Because everything about this child's development, their very existence, owes itself to this union. There's not a single person in this room who came into this world apart from that union. Even if it was expressed in the wrong way. Even if it was, as we talked about last week, a deception, a phony, a fake. Even if it was that. Not a single person in this room came into this world apart from union. And our children need that in order to grow healthy and spiritually. So you can't see them as separate. You can't see your, your functionality as a husband, or I mean as a father, your functionality as a mother, apart from how you relate to your spouse as a husband or wife. And here's what this tells us, and I want to speak here to fathers in particular. Put your spouse, actually it's both, Put your spouse before your kids. They're first. Now we know this, right? Because of what we just looked at in the preceding verses. That the husband and the wife are what? One 
flesh. Guess, guess what your kid is not with you? One flesh. They're not. They're not one flesh with you. In fact, they will grow up and they will leave. And they, pro- they may call, they may not. They may send a Mother's Father's Day card, they may not. They may go to vacation with you in the summer, they may not. They are not one flesh with you. They were meant to be raised by you and sent off to leave and cleave. Perhaps, if that's God's calling for them. But they are nonetheless not a one flesh person, but your spouse is. As long as you live in the hour of your death, that person is one with you for the rest of your life. So when we put husband in front of, in front of children, I mean, when we put children in front of husband or when we put children in front of wife, we are perverting the entire thing. And we actually are backfiring. We think that I'm pouring into my kids. I love you, but I'm pouring into my kids. I'm pouring into my kids. That's not happening. We're not pouring into our kids unless we're pouring into our kids from a foundation and a context of good, solid unity. So children derive from union. And I think we see that from the context of our verse. Finally, children depend on our authority. The main instruction given to children in our passage is this. Obey. Obey. The main instruction given to wives was submit. The main instruction given to husbands is love. And we, we treated this under the category of headship. A wife's submission and a husband's headship. It's a loving headship. That's why we repeatedly said that a husband is a lover. He, he is a lover, a leader, and a lamp. And all the ways that we see described in those verses. But the one instruction, the one instruction given to children is this. Obey. Period. That is the instruction for children. To submit to their authority, to act in accordance with their wishes, to follow their instructions. So on a basic level, why is a child's obedience so important? This is where I want to finish up this morning. I want to look at this topic of obedience, just a little bit. We're just going to scratch the surface on it because as we go through, obviously there's a lot to look at in the next couple of verses and then a lot to look at in verse 4. And so what I just want to do is just kind of introduce this concept of obedience and answer the question, why is it so important? Just a few things I want to look at here. First, obedience teaches a child their place in the universe. Rebel children grow up to be vile, rebel sinners in the face of God. Children who will not submit to their parents grow up and hate God and throw off all authority. They do not submit to the police. They do not submit to governing, governing authorities. And they do not, do not submit to the governing authority of God over all things, over the universe. They have no sense of their place in the cosmos. They see themselves as at the center of the cosmos. They're the ones who lead and direct and guide their own lives and everything else is at the service of them. You teach them how to relate to God when you teach them to obey yourself, to obey you. Fundamentally important. Obedience teaches them their place in the universe. Obedience forms a context for teaching and receiving in the direction of wisdom and away from folly. Listen to what it says in Psalm 51.5. Behold, this is David, 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not a single one of us who is a parent, or who has been a parent, is going to deny that truth. <laughs> when you see the little kids, when they come out, they start to make their debut in the world, it's selfishness at the very beginning. It's screaming and crying and needing and taking selfishness all the way through. That's how they begin life. That's how you began life. That's how I began life. This is original sin. We have a nature that is turned away from God. We have a nature that is turned away from obedience to God's word. And we turn towards self. We turn towards sin. It manifests itself day one. All the way up through our lives. Proverbs twenty two fifteen says this. Folly. I wonder if you've ever read this verse before. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That's a, that's a very vivid image. Bound up in the heart of a child. It's the idea that you can't parse it out. You can't go into the heart of a child and sort of do some surgery and say, well, mostly good, mostly stable, mostly wise, but I'm going to sort of cut out these, these foolish chunks. I'm going to throw them to the side. No, it, it, it does not leave room for that. It is bound up. In the heart of a child, meaning that at every place, everything that you might perceive as good or positive is bound up and intermixed with all kinds of folly. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. We'll talk about spanking and other things like that as we go on. But see this at this point, folly driven out by the rod of discipline. Very important. Obedience will put a check on their destructive self-will. What is right in their own eyes? When you get to the book of Judges, you see that the people have thrown off the authority of God. They've thrown off the authority of God's law. And every man, it says, did right in his own eyes. Did what he thought was right in his own eyes. But yet we read that the heart is deceitful above all things and that people go their own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. That's what we as human beings do. We go towards folly. We go towards our own way. And what obedience does, obedience comes along and it, and it creates a context for instruction. Obedience, training a child in obedience is to train them to listen. It is to train them to receive. A child that is not trained in obedience never sits under instruction never responds to discipline, never exists in a context in which there is hearing and receiving and applying and moving forward in wisdom. It is to stay a fool. So when you do not train your children, when we do not train our children in obedience, we train them to be fools. We train them to throw off God's authority and to grow up vile and rebellious against the Lord. Finally, I want you to see this. Obedience will lead them to look inward and upward. This is the glorious outcome that we hope for. We train children in obedience. It forces them to look inward to their heart and to realize they can't be. To realize that if obedience is something that proceeds from love, they can't do it. 
If obedience is something that proceeds not from selfishness or not because, man, that spanking's going to hurt, so I'm not going to do that, that's good. That creates a context for you to train them and for us to give them wisdom. But ultimately, the child must look inward and see in his or her heart that there is an inability to keep God's law. It can't be done. My heart is corrupt. Folly is bound up, wrapped up, intermixed in my heart. I cannot keep God's law. That's a wonderful place for a child to get to. We want them to get to that point, but they don't get to that point unless we train them in obedience because it is there that they learn that they can't be obedient. And then their eyes are drawn to the obedient one. Romans 5, 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What you want, what we want for our little kids and for those who are growing up under our care, we want them to see Christ. We want them to come to know that they can't keep God's law, but there is one who can and who did and who did on their behalf. And we want them in that struggle of soul, in that brokenness, in that, will, in that understanding of their own inability, we want them to fall on their face before a holy God who is gracious and kind and loving and who sent his son to be the obedient one in our place and to trust everything, to entrust everything into his hands and to believe that although I can't keep your law, God, I never could. Jesus did on my behalf. I trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins and through him I stand righteous before you forever. Clothed in the obedience and the righteousness of Jesus. That's, that's where we want our kids to be. That place. But it begins with spankings and obedience and teaching and training and shepherding and moving them towards what is good and right and wise. I want to finish with this quote. From J.C. Ryle, duties of parents, duties of parents. This is a, an extended quote, so please try to listen to what you hear in these words. He says this, and this may be counterintuitive to some of you. Train your child with an abiding persuasion on your mind that much depends upon you. You know, it is the case that you often will hear in the context of the church, it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't matter what I do. It's all in God's hands. There's truth to that, but there's also error in that way of thinking. Listen to what he goes on to say. Early habits, if I may so speak, are everything with us under God. We are made what we are by training. Our character takes the form of that mold into which our first years are cast. We depend, in a vast measure, on those who bring us up. God gives your children a mind that will receive impressions like moist clay. He gives them a disposition at the starting point of life to believe what you tell them. And to take for granted what you advise them. And to trust your word rather than a stranger's. He gives you, in short, a golden opportunity of doing them good. See that the opportunity be not neglected and thrown away. Once let slip, it is gone 
forever. There's more I want to read, but I want to just say this here. Dads who have children still under their care, moms who have children still under their care, don't throw away this precious opportunity, this gospel opportunity, this training opportunity. Once let slip, it is gone forever. Much can still be done, but this opportunity is gone. He goes on to say this, Beware of that miserable delusion into which some have fallen, that parents can do nothing for their children, that you must leave them alone and wait for grace and sit still. These persons have wishes for their children in Balaam's fashion. They would like them to die the death of the righteous man, but they do nothing to make them live his life. They desire much and have nothing. And the devil rejoices to see such reasoning. Is that your reasoning? The devil rejoices to see such reasoning, just as he does over anything which seems to excuse indolence or to encourage neglect of means. God has given us means for the raising of our children. Let's use them. Let's use them and then trust God. And listen to what he goes on to say about that. I know that you cannot convert your child. I know well that they who are born again are born not of the will of man, but of God. But I know also that God says expressly, train up a child in the way he should go. And that God never laid a command on man, which he would not give man grace to perform. And I know too that our duty is not to stand still and dispute, but to go forward and obey. It is just in the going forward that God will meet us. The path of obedience is the way in which he gives the blessing. We have only to do as the servants were commanded at the marriage feast in Cana, to fill the water pots with water, and we may safely leave it to the Lord to turn that water into wine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for his grace for our children. Let's ask for his wisdom and vigor in the raising of those children for his glory. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the enabling power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, I just pray today that you will help us to be encouraged by what is held out for us in the scriptures as to what in Christ you empower us to do. Father, we recognize that the salvation of our children rests with you. And yet, Lord, as we see here, there's absolutely nothing else that we should do besides strive in every way for their conversion, to train them and teach them obedience and to to point them in the direction of wisdom as that father who opens up in Proverbs chapter 1 pleads with his son, do not follow the way of folly, but follow the way of wisdom. God, help us be like that father. Help us be like you, father, always watching over us, always caring for us, always shepherding and guiding and disciplining us. Father, I pray for parents here today whose kids have grown up. Lord, parents who did all that they could, who who followed your word and who taught their children and their children are not living according to your word. 
I pray for much encouragement and strengthening of soul. I pray for much entrusting them into your hands. I pray, Lord, that you will protect them from discouragement and despair. And I pray that, Lord, even for those who did not do that. Parents who look back and say, I didn't. I didn't teach my children. I didn't point them towards wisdom. I didn't make the word of God central. Lord, I pray that they will find peace by your spirit and not carry around regret and remorse, but even now they will pick up what they need to do. And they will, they will start striving now. Start pointing their children, even if grown now, towards you, towards wisdom. And do it in a way that is gracious and kind and recognizes that those children are no longer under their care. But God, give them wisdom. I know it's a delicate situation. I pray for them, Father, in particular. Would you bless us all, those who have small children, children who are growing, and children who are grown. Lord God, would you help us and would you bless our children? Would you touch their lives? Would you protect them from evil influences, things that would destroy them and things that would drag them down into foolishness? We pray this day with great confidence, Father, that you hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.